Welcome to the AIER Standard, a production of the American Institute for Economic Research. I'm Ethan Yang. Washington's influence in the world, for all its flaws, undeniably advanced ideas that those of us here in the West find valuable. These include a rules-based international order, universal human rights, free trade, and security. Countries like Russia and China demonstrate that there are actors in this world that are not interested in these values. It is apparent that America cannot make the world a freer place by being a global policeman. It is also clear that the inter international institutions like the United Nations serve as mere forums with no ability to enforce rules. However, an international superstate is also a non-starter. Given these sobering facts about the world as it is and not as we wish it was, how do advocates of liberty create a world that respects the international rule of law and advances freedom? Perhaps the answer does not come from a foreign policy expert, but an economist, the great Nobel laureate Friedrich Hayek. Hayek's work on international relations is the topic of an award-winning paper written by Marcos Falconi, who joined us today. Marcos is the project manager of Fundation Libertad and a Harvard visiting, and a Harvard visiting fellow here at AIER during, during the summer of 2022. He, he pursued his master's in social science from the University of Chicago and hold, and has a BA in political science from, and you're going to have to help me with that name. No problem. Uh, Universidad Torcuato de Tela. In Argentina. Marcos, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ethan, and thank you for inviting me. Of course, and also, I guess, welcome to AIER as well. Well, yeah. Uh, thank you, AIER, for inviting me to spend the summer here. It's been, uh, it, it, my time here is coming to an end, but it's been a pleasure to to interact with all of you. Yeah, and I'm certainly glad that you're here. Um, so to start off, you write in your paper that Hayek argued for uh, what he called a community of free men. What exactly, when, when we're talking about international relations, what exactly is he trying to get at? Yeah, so Hayek, um, in The Road to Serfdom, uh, the book that came out in 1945, he was very concerned about the world and that's very understandable because, of course, 1945 is a time where um, the World War II is coming to an end. Uh, but this this is a world full of Hitlers, Mussolinis, Stalins. So Hayek was concerned about the stability mm. of global order because by that time we had already had one failure, which was the League of Nations, which had failed to prevent basically World War II after being founded in the 19. Um, after the end of World War One in the 1910s and 1920s. So Hayek's goal in this book, when he says that he wants a community of free men, um, and he explicitly, sorry, he explicitly says this, he says he wants neither an omnipotent superstate nor a loose association of nations. So he, want, he wants something in the middle. He wants um, a kind of organization that can keep world peace, basically. Mm. So that's the basis, that's, that's the starting point for my paper, um, in which I argue that his goal is actually an early goal that can be brought together with later insights of Hayek's work um, in order to, well, create a response as to today, how we can defend liberty at the global scale. Mm. And so your paper, that, that idea does touch on some essential international relations theories that I want to first, I guess, outline for the audience to really set the foundation. Um, so I guess um, the first assumption would be, okay, so I get this, this sounds great, but, you know, as classical liberals, shouldn't we just want to get along with the rest of the world, right? Why, why are we engaging 
uh, in international relations, uh, which is, you know, inherently collectivist, inherently big government, right? So why is it worth, as people who believe in individual liberty, uh, getting involved in global affairs, essentially? Right. Uh, so the answer for me, at least, would be that I want to see change within my lifetime, mm. right? So in academia, in, in libertarian academia, we tend to uh, dive deep into theories that we are almost certain are not going to be put in place during our lifetimes. We are usually advancing ideas uh, for the long-term future. But if I want to see change now or change within 5 or 10 or 20 years, um, I think that is the main reason why I or anyone who defends liberty uh, and feels like a classical liberal or a libertarian should get involved uh, with global affairs. That, that would be my answer. And to touch on that, uh, on a point that you were mentioning earlier, um, we know that this world is not going anywhere in terms mm -hmm. of how it is structured. We have nation states. We've had them for over two centuries now. It is unlikely that they will fade as a model. So for the purposes of this article, I'm just trying to imagine a world that is as similar as we have it today, only with minor changes or maybe major changes, but feasible changes mm. that can improve liberty and can improve uh, the, the, the well-being of people across the world. Mm. And this goes into an international theory called realism as opposed to liberalism, which is more associated with more interventionist, more internationalist, globalist views. And realism basically says that, and I guess Hayek was essentially being a realist. I'm not really sure how much he knew about international relations, but I guess growing up during World War II would probably give you a really good idea about just how bad things can get. So it's not necessarily uh, that he's trying to change the world per se. He's just trying, he's just reacting to the fact that there are countries out there that do not respect liberty. And if you do not defend yourself and get everyone else who agrees with you to defend to defend each other, then you're going to let these bad actors, the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany, they're, they don't care about morality as we see it, right? right? They're going to do what they want to do. Russia is in Ukraine, right? They, they could care less about how many Ukrainian uh, like emojis you stick on Facebook, right? They, they do <laughs> not care. Um, and the only way to meet force is with force. Um, so that it's essentially just a realistic view of how the natural order works. Yeah, it's uh, it's curious, isn't it, that liberalism in international relations uh, relates to actually intervening uh, mm. as, as states, uh, and that realists would be the ones who maybe try to stay out of other people's business or try to acknowledge uh, that you know we have a world that is structured as it is, and we can't really do much to change it immediately in the short term. Um, I think, interestingly, I think this divergence that I was talking about between Hayek's early goals and later strategies can be structured in terms of realism and liberalism, or, or maybe we should call it idealism, mm. right? Uh, his concern in 1945 is just how to stabilize this and how to stop millions of people from dying in World War Wars, how to stop dictatorships uh, that are basically curtailing freedoms all across the world. But so that's that would be a sort of realist approach to, to, to international relations. And then as time goes on and we move to the 1970s and books like 
the fatal conceit um, and denationalization of money, uh, that that's a different Hayek. That's a mm -hmm. more idealist Hayek, um, if you will, that I think is different in that he's thinking more abstractly, probably because, you know, by this time he's like 70 or something. So he knows he, he doesn't have that much time left in the world. He wants to um, sort of have a legacy, share a legacy with the people uh, for, for the long-term future. And so it's interesting, right? I, I think, and I think this, this uh, evolution is likely to happen to many of us uh, during our lifetimes, right? That, that we want to do something about uh, current global affairs right now when we're young or younger, mm -hmm. relatively speaking. And then as we grow old, we become more idealists. Mm. And I guess liberalism as defined in international relations speak, I guess is an extension of liberalism in the economic sense, in the sense that liberals believe that just like, uh, I guess, market liberals believe that incentives can change people's behavior, that markets have this inherent quality to them that makes people cooperate. And essentially, it's just being applied to the global stage in a way that doesn't necessarily play out if you view the world through realist lens in the sense that universal morality is a core liberal tenet. That's why, you know, liberals just can justify intervention in the sense that, you know, we get to follow international law, we get to enforce it, we need to enforce our you know, morality abroad. And perhaps, and they also believe strongly in international institutions like the UN because they believe those institutions can fundamentally change the behavior of states. Um, whereas a realist would say that states have their own interests and they will not change. The Chinese will do what the Chinese want to do. The Russians will do what the Russians want to do. And you can only meet um, these disparate interests with your with resistance, right? And that's and you got basically have to play the game. You can't just create the UN, the UN, and then believe the UN is going to change everything, right? Yeah, you also can't really believe that the UN is going to act against itself. Mm -hmm. um, so the, it, it's interesting because realists usually uh, believe that um, nation states have a power that supersedes that of international organizations and that if they want to go against what they say, they just do it and it's no problem. But I think um, a recent very interesting development is that international organizations increasingly have powers of their own. Uh, of course, they don't insofar as they are funded by states. So if they sort of uh, say no to, to funding them, that they will be uh, in a very bad position. But there's a development, a, a growth of bureaucracy at the global level, which in my case, in the case of this paper, is both a danger and an opportunity in that, of course, it's a danger because as classical liberals or, or libertarians, we want governments to be limited. We certainly don't want two governments, uh, a supranational mm -hmm. government and a national government intervening in our daily lives more than they have to. We don't want them to be unlimited. But it's also an opportunity in trying to uh, come up with a way to secure global peace in the way that Hayek was thinking about it, perhaps more realistically than idealistically. Mm. So I want to get into, uh, I guess before, because I just uh, was talking about realism and I mentioned the use of force, I think, but I also need to clarify that realists also believe in the non-use of force in the sense they believe that forces can't change everything. Um, 
That's why they. That's why a lot of realists believe in compromise. They believe in um, stopping a war by essentially conceding certain uh, certain territory. Um, they believe in working with people you might disagree with to address a bigger problem. Right. So re realists are just. It's not just about uh, being able to use force. It's also the realization that uh, in some instances less force or compromise might might be better than an idealized alternative, i.e. Um, just, you know, fighting a moral war, essentially. Fighting a war for the sake of fighting. Um, realists would say that we have to think about our interests, or the other side will think about their interests, and they're going to act in that interest and not necessarily towards a abstract idea of international morality. Um, so on, I guess, more into the nuts and bolts of what Hayek was thinking about, about this community of free men, you, you talk about, uh, your paper focuses on uh, secession. Uh, that, that's one of the first points you bring up. So can you explain what Hayek's thoughts on that were, on that are, and then how does that play into his big project? So Hayek doesn't talk that much about secession. He talks more about federalism. Mm. Um, and that's how I try to bring his thought together with the argument that I built, right? So when he's saying, when Hyde's saying that we need neither an omnipotent superstate nor loose association of nations, um, he, in terms of the first, he's saying that a supranational government with unlimited power or with high powers is unfeasible. And the reason why uh, this is so is mainly because of cultural differences. So he say he says basically that with the diversity that we have across the world of cultures and nations, it is very unlikely that the, that we will that we can get them all to agree to a supranational government in the same terms. Mm -hmm. So this is why he's saying that um, a supranational government is unfeasible. So in that sense, um, I think he is understanding very well um, just how difficult it's going to be to build a, a big government at the, the global level. And in terms of the federalist question, well, of course, this recognizes federalism, right? This, this recognition of Hayek supports federalism. And what I do is I try to um, bring that together with the concept of secession. Because just for, for the audience, um, a, a bit of context on this paper. This is a paper for the Montpellier Society. Uh, they were concerned with two specific issues, secession and subsidiarity. So the, the argument that I build is not just based off of what Hayek says, but in my case at least, it is uh, what I try to do is to make it compatible mm. with Hayek's goals and strategies. So Hayek himself does not really talk that much about secession. But what I argue is that secession can be both morally right and positive. Because what I say is basically, well, secession can be morally right if people want to secede, of course. Mm -hmm. As classical liberals, we want states, governments, to respect the people's opinions. If there is a large number of people who want to leave a state, why should they not be allowed to do so? Of course, they're very there, there are lots of problems of uh, implementation of mm -hmm. enforcement in terms of what happens if there is you know 99 percent of the people want to leave but one percent does not uh, those are very complex issues that philosophers should get into mm -hmm. uh, but what i'm saying is if people want to leave we should let them leave uh, so that's the moral side and then the consequentialist uh, part of the argument or the the 
yeah, in terms of consequences, is that secession is optimal in that it responds to people's preferences. Because if people want to leave, they will be um, in a negative position, if you will, until they do so. Um, and so in many cases, the state's ca capabilities are not even what people are concerned about. People just want a state for their own people. Because uh, in many cases, what we see is that secession takes place in places um, where a culture is thought of as being at risk, mm -hmm. right? So people want to protect their culture, um, or at least they want to feel like they are represented by a state. So in that case, it doesn't even matter if the state can actually, if a new state can actually do that. The mere fact that it exists is good because it mm -hmm. meets their preferences. So, and then I also argue that um, in, in a state, in a global state where nothing changes, um, if we have more government, more, a, a higher number of states that um, are at the service of the same uh, number of people, then we're bringing people closer to the government, right? Mm. So that's good for those who defend negative liberty, which would be the case of Hayek, but also positive liberty. So if if you're thinking about the negative, and I'm talking about in terms of Isaiah Berlin's uh, negative and positive conceptualization, if you think about the negative side, you know, you'll be more likely to limit government if it's closer to you. Mm -hmm. And on the positive side, if uh, you have more states at the service of the same number of people, you'll also be closer to, uh, well, if, if you look at it the other way, the state will be closer to the people in that people will be able to get more involved um, in local affairs, for example, than um in, in the current state of affairs, right? Mm. So, so that's, yeah, sorry, that's, sorry, sorry for the long answer, but that's, uh, those are my thoughts on secession, how they can be compatible mm. with high goals and strategies. So step one, when it comes to creating a freer world is allowing uh, countries to essentially break up so people can create their, can have communities that are much more tailored to their interests. Uh, governments can be closer to the people when the when the states are smaller. Uh, huge international or not inter huge states like Russia or United States or the U.S. run the risk of you know Moscow making policy for for only one aspect of Russia, whereas you know you got a whole other whole other chunk of it that's you know, not too happy with the way things are run. Same thing here in the U.S. Washington D.C. makes all these policies. Uh, maybe people in California like it, but the people in Texas and Wyoming are not too happy with it. And so step one towards creating a freer world uh, is essentially having just smaller states, governments closer to the people, uh, people being able to express themselves in more concrete ways. And so you can have states that are that serve one type of people, and then you can have another state that serves a different type of people. And basically, you know, you can basically, you can kind of pick and choose which one you want to live in. So I guess step one is more countries. Yeah, and just one clarification or one caveat maybe is that this, what I'm proposing in this paper is not even uh, fostering secession. It's, it's just allowing it to happen mm -hmm. wherever people want it. So we're not trying to say, you know, we should have more nation states in the world. We're just saying if people want them, let them have them. So it may be the case that the U.S. chooses to stay 
as a single country. Maybe the case that Russia does too, though I'm not so sure about that case. Um, but the thing is, if people want to see, they should be able to do so. Mm-hmm. So the, the argument you're putting forth obviously does not just rest on secession because there's obviously a lot more that needs to happen for the world to become freer um, than just letting uh, you know all these countries break up. So what's, what's step two? Step two, you say subsidiarity, right? So how does this play into the big picture? Right. So that seems like an obscure kind of concept. So just let me clarify what that means. The, the principle of subsidiarity, uh, when applied to government affairs, means that um, the level of government who's closer um, to the issue at play should be the one to intervene, right? Mm-hmm. So if there's a problem with, I don't know, uh, trash, uh, garbage disposal uh, in a small town, it will likely be the small ca- the, the town council which intervenes. And if there's a problem uh, with regards to an invasion from one country to another, then we will have you know the national government step up. Um, this seems pretty straightforward, right? Mm-hmm. It seems pretty easy. Um, but my argument is that this principle, which is actually recognized but by most governments and international organizations across the world is not really being followed. So, for example, uh, the European Union, um, in the way that they state the subsidiarity principle, it allows uh, for bureaucrats to actually intervene if they don't like Mm. what certain levels of government are doing. So what they say is that the principle of subsidiarity means um, that – a government can only intervene, a level of government can only intervene if they see that the goal that should be being pursued by a different level of government is not being pursued. So mm-hmm. that opens the door to all sorts of interventions uh, that essentially duplicate state uh, functions, right, mm. uh, and structures. So I think that this principle is not being followed strictly. Uh, because in the case of the European Union, for example, this principle is supposedly coupled by the principle of conferral, by means of which states um, give to the European Union or state to the European Union what are the powers that the European that the European Union can have. So my argument is we need we need to make these principles uh, not the principles sorry we need to make these powers explicit government. Any level of government should not intervene upon other governments' affairs unless this is explicitly recognized in constitutions or treaties, Mm -hmm. right? And and the consequentialist side of it, if you will, is that this um, actually leads to more efficient international organizations. Because if you have an international organization that is basically doing the same thing that a national government or a subnational government is doing, then it, it can become expensive. And we saw, for example, in the Brexit referendum a few years ago, that one of the arguments for uh, those who said that Britain should not leave the EU was that uh, the European Union had given Britain, uh, I think it was in 2016, 13 billion pounds for uh, local development projects. But then the question is, why did the European Union decide on funds that were not even given to the national UK government, but subnational governments? That is 
certainly a misallocation of resources, right? Because mm -hmm. there are surely people who could who could have made better decisions.